you're listening to the holistic travel nurse podcast um this is going to be part two all right stay tuned do the, everything you can do to prevent having a bad outcome, no matter what comes your way. Dr. Stock has pure health functional medicine in uh, Indiana. He's a pas- passionate practitioner of functional medicine. He prescribes both prescription and non-prescription treatments without bias. Uh, Dr. Stock, if you're on the call, sir, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Dan Stock. <laughs> Man, well, <laughs> That's a lot of... Uh... A lot of big uh, words for a family doctor who just likes to geek out and get people as well as he can. <laughs> well, that's what matters, man. That's what makes you special. Thank you for being brave and being a doctor, right? Who knew that was such a rare thing these days? Yeah, you, you know, I, I always knew you had to be brave when you had to tell a patient you couldn't cure him. I never thought it would have to require the brave that I can't save you from your government. Um, that's the harder message to give off. So I understand that my tasks here today are kind of go over the nutraceutical prevention of disease, um, which is a, as a family doctor is just very passionate, something I'm very passionate about. And uh, to get people thinking about that, um, I think there's a couple numbers they need to, to recognize and that's somewhere between 50 and 75% of people who become infected with COVID-19 or influenza or the common cold or respiratory syncytial virus are gonna get no symptoms their immune systems are gonna defeat that virus without any problem. And so it, it suggests strongly that while this may, these may be viral infections, they're actually immune system and inflammation regulatory diseases as Dr. Chetty alluded to. Which then leads to asking the question, gee, what's the difference between the immune system of the guy who gets infected and doesn't get sick and the inflammation and immune systems of the guys who get infected and do get sick? Um, And that's where functional doctors, we cut down to the chase here and say, okay, let's find those differences. Um, At the risk of sounding like the guy who just beats the vitamin D drum until it's dead, it appears that the single biggest variable in ending up severely ill and dead from COVID-19 is having an insufficient level of vitamin D. And anybody on this call should hopefully already know that vitamin D is actually not a vitamin. Uh, it's an autocoid prohormone, which is used by cells to regulate their response to and their signaling of the immune system when they get an inflammatory stimulus of injury. Um, as a matter of fact, the, epide- the uh, epidemiology studies indicate that 75% of the risk of dying from COVID-19 is simply having a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, which is less than 55. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is backed up by acute treatment studies that actually show us that we can take somebody who has already been hospitalized for COVID-19 and if we give them the active form of vitamin D, it's 90% effective at preventing the progression to the ICU, highly statistically significant. Um, And uh, 100% effective at preventing death. Numbers in that study were small, not statistically significant, but I would mention better than the death prevention for any vaccine on the market for COVID-19. And by the way, that treatment of of active form of vitamin D was equally effective regardless of whether you were thin or obese, normotensive or had high blood pressure, normoglycemic or had diabetes, or whether you were old or young. Um, So, and the first thing in prevention is get a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level that's at least 55. Vitamin D is actually consumed by the body when it's in the middle of an inflammatory process. So I actually like... It's more like up in the 75 uh, range 
um, because at that range, as they burn through it, they won't burn through less enough to get their levels so low they get in trouble. Uh, the other nutraceutical that I think is very, very easy, very inexpensive at prevention um, is zinc. Uh, with people recognizing that the viral replicases, the things that let them make their own genes and take over your cells are all highly zinc dependent, uh, excuse me, zinc inhibited, whereas our systems, um, not only in our replicases, but also in our inflammation regulation mechanisms, um, especially oxidative inflammation are highly zinc dependent. And that the vast majority of human beings walk around deficient in zinc. Um, Many people, especially if they've accumulated heavy metals, don't need their heavy metals removed. They just need large, very well-absorbed doses of zinc to flush out their heavy metals. Um, and that can be accomplished easily with a solution of zinc sulfate, which is available as a 5% solution. Uh, there's a link on my website to a very inexpensive product. And by the way, I, I have it in my contract with all of my patients that I'm not allowed to make money on anything I give them advice about. So when you buy from that website, you're just buying from somebody else and I don't get any money or kickback or anything from that. And I have my people take one to two teaspoons of that, which would be about 25 milligrams of zinc and zinc sulfate once or twice a day. If they have a zinc taste test, uh, which is greater than five seconds in length. And that can be tested by taking a 2% solution of zinc sulfate. You just take the 5% and dilute it three parts distilled water to two parts of the solution. Put a teaspoon of that in your mouth and uh, see how many seconds it takes for you to taste something besides water. Uh, most people will be bitter metallic. Some people tell me it's sweet, but what matters is how many seconds for it to come on. Um, after zinc, there have been other things that we've shown have been uh, indicated just on a nutraceutical capacity uh, to make your body upregulate its ability to control inflammation and also to bring on what we call the innate immune system, which is the most ancient part of our immune system. Um, it doesn't even have to know what virus it's fighting or what protein is involved here to go destroy a virus infected cell. Um, and those two things are selenium and iodine. And these have both been shown that they actually upregulate not only um, the ability to suppress oxidative inflammation, and this, by the way, is placebo-controlled randomized blinded trial in humans, but also to upregulate natural killer cell count, which is probably the fundamental cell of uh, innate immunity. Um, macrophage function, who's the other uh, buddy in innate immunity, and make these things so that they're better to go to war so that when you do get infected, you're protected with them. Uh, I understand my second task is go over, hey, early treatment of nutraceuticals. Um, which is pretty much the exact same stuff I just went over with a couple of caveats. Um, the one being that when people get inflamed, their body actually becomes very bad many times at converting vitamin D to the active form. Some people who have extant liver disease have trouble with that even when they're not inflamed. In that situation, depending on vitamin D to raise your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, which is the active form, is a little bit risky because you may not get it done. In fact, much of the shade that's been thrown on vitamin D by the VAX crowd and the no early treatment crowd has been, hey, we've had some studies with vitamin D that said it didn't work. It was like, well, yeah, a week into the thing when you're all inflamed, or if you have pre-existing liver disease, it's probably not going to get you what you want. But it's actually available over the counter right now, um, a product called Develop, which is the active form of vitamin D. And so what I do for acute treatment for people, when they call me up over the phone and say, Dan, I haven't been taking vitamin D or I don't have my vitamin D blood level uh, uh, tested yet to know that I'm good, 
is I tell them, well, let's forget trying to use vitamin D because who knows if you're going to convert it or not. We don't have time to find out. As Dr. Chetty very obviously proved, if we don't have this inflammation under control fairly quickly, uh, this is going to lead to an immune system derangement here around seven days into this. And so I just have them use the active form of vitamin D. Depending on how much vitamin D they've been taking beforehand, I'll have them use 30 to 60 tablets all at one time on day one, uh, followed two days later by another 15 to 30 tablets, and do that again at, at the seven-day mark and every week until they're well. And this gets vitamin D levels up in the neighborhood of 45 to 55. Um, I've never seen a single patient get toxic from doing this. Um, it's very hard to get toxic on vitamin D. Um, and that way you can rapidly get somebody up uh, to an active form of vitamin D. Uh, the zinc pretty much stays the same thing. The only thing, an active thing I tell you you have to know about when you're acutely ill, um, you have to have an adequate level of selenium on board before you can start doing iodine. And so I don't very often use iodine during acute treatment because I've got to get you know, about 10 days to two weeks of good selenium sufficiency into you, uh, 200 to 400 micrograms a day of selenium. And I'm not sure I can do that before I can throw the iodine on board. And this is where I think the key thing of things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine become effective now, uh, because we don't have the ability to fix things nutraceutically quite as fast as we'd like to. Nutraceuticals do a great job of uh, getting things prevented, but they're a slower treatment. And this is where things like ivermectin, uh, natokinase to break down the clotting that comes on, uh, things that can stop the histamine storm, as Dr. Chetty is so... Uh, uh, wonderfully talked about with the antihistamine therapies. Uh, the serotonin storm that can be blocked become very, very effective. Uh, about the only other thing that's useful nutraceutical, uh, nutraceutically is this stuff called transfer factor, which is actually something made by your own immune system cells or the innate immune system, and they upregulate um, uh, activity of the innate immunity. In fact, you can even buy specific transfer factors that have, they, they are like antibodies or specific for given pathogens. And starting this early on, for instance, in herpes diseases has been shown in randomized blinded comparator trials to not only work better than placebo, but to actually work better than things like valacyclovir uh, for herpes infections um, and for shingles infections. So transfer factor is another thing that can be used nutraceutically, can be bought over the counter. The specific forms, unfortunately, people can't buy on their own. They have to buy those through a physician. Um, but the specific forms can actually get an immune system acutely up and running. And so that it's actually hunting down the pathogen and trying to do something about the pathogen to stop it before we get to the immune system stage. It should be mentioned, by the way, that deficiencies of all those nutrients I mentioned are actually involved in having the immune system do this wrong step that Dr. Chetty mentioned it happens around day seven to eight which is where the immune system suddenly starts chunking out a whole bunch of antibodies that aren't helpful. Many of them, the IgE class that cause the allergic reaction. And we've actually got data already that shows that vitamin D, zinc and selenium and iodine, as well as transfer factor have all shown that they shift the immune system away from antibody mediated responses and to cellular mediated responses, which is what really fights the virus in the first place and then would prevent you from going into that out of control antibody response uh, that leads to that second phase with the allergic reactions being studied. Um, the third thing I was uh, told to ask about is managing vaccine side effects. And um, this I tell people is a, is a grand experiment um, because as everyone has mentioned before this, we've never tried to save a group of human beings from this kind of biochemical assault. Um, 
one of the things I think we need to make sure people know is that um, to a degree, we probably can't solve this. And let me tell you why I give that very dour assessment. Um, these vaccines, because of the way they work, absolutely make that if you do get a helpful immune system response, a cellular immune response, you're going to have to go destroy tissue. Now, your body's very careful when it's going to fight off pathogens to have a lining of your respiratory system or a lining of your gut that it can easily reproduce and get replacements for. And so if we sacrifice some of that, it doesn't matter. We'll just make new. These vaccines, unfortunately, put these nanoparticles in and they are everywhere throughout the body. Only 20% is retained at the arm. 80% is going to every tissue. And if this goes into tissues that the body is not good at regenerating, such as myocardium, nerve tissue, or the one tissue that we can never regenerate at all, which is ovarian egg cells, um, then we should expect that some of the damage of these vaccines will never be undoable because we're going to destroy tissue we can't get back. And I bring this up to hearken to Dr. McCulloch's word that the best way to prevent vaccine problems is just don't get one of these things. Um, even in our six-month follow-up from Pfizer's data, we had all kinds of evidence that there was uh, signals of harm from death as well as statistically significant harms from hospitalization and all-cause um, uh, morbidity. If I am trying to take somebody who's having a vaccine side effect, this is where I think something like ivermectin can be very effective because it binds that spike protein um, and hopefully prevents it from having the interactions with the ACE2 receptor that triggers so much of the inflammatory cascade. Um, so pretty much what I do for prevention and acute treatment um, are the things I try and do to limit the uh, vaccine injury. Um, there are other things that you may have to throw on board besides transfer factor, things that can try and shift this immune system derangement from the antibody mediated heavy side to the cellular immune system side. Um, things like Losartan at low dose, which is a blood pressure medicine that for a totally unrelated reason actually appears to shift the immune system back to the cellular immunity form. Um, even injections of thymosin alpha, though I have not used them myself will do this. Transfer factor does the same thing. The, the key thing to understanding this, though, that as we try and do those things that move stuff to cellular immunity, if you've been vaccinated, you now have a bunch of cells expressing this spike protein. We're probably going to help your cellular immune system destroy that tissue. But I don't know what else to do if we're going to try and get your immune system back. It's just I, I've had limited luck um, trying to get through the vaccine side effects. Transfer factor has made it so I can get some people who are having shingles outbreaks to get that to go away. Um, all of my people, I'll start off with great vitamin D and zinc and selenium sufficiency to begin with. Um, and even these people have been injured by vaccines in ways that I'm still trying to unravel and get stopped. Um, so I'd love to give a happier assessment, but um, you know, other than the other things I've already talked about, ivermectin seems to be the, the key thing that I can add on top of vaccine injury. And I've seen it work quickly to take shortness of breath and make it better. Um, the other one that I think is useful to consider is the clot busting supplement called natokinase. Uh, natokinase actually breaks down the fibrin clots that develop from this. I've had some luck with that in people who get their vaccines and say, hey, I'm getting really short of breath. We get D-dimers that are back very elevated. And I'll have them take uh, 2,000 uh, fibrinolytic units, which is the same as 100 milligrams of natokinase two to three times a day. I've seen it actually raise oxygen saturations in 30 minutes. 
um, probably because it breaks down clots and takes away some of the shunting. But nanokinase can be very effective in that time to try and get the side effects from the clotting caused by vaccines taken care of. Um, but at the risk of sounding very desperate, um, it seems very hard in my practice to reverse the few patients of mine who have chosen to be vaccinated. And by the way, none of them did it because they thought it was good for them. They all did it to avoid either a financial or a social uh, uh, coercion they had going on. It's been very hard to reverse the injury from these vaccines. And the thing that most concerns me, because ovarian egg cells, uh, ovaries get the second greatest amount of these nanoparticles that come out of the arm after the spleen. And those egg cells that start to express this must be destroyed. How we're going to prevent the onset of premature menopause and the, and the females who are being vaccinated, which to my mind, obligately must happen because of the way the vaccines work. I have no idea how to get them back those egg cells. And I haven't seen anybody else suggesting how to do it either. Yeah, and that's a really big concern also when they're now injecting young women and young children with these, knowing there's no long-term uh, data, it's, it's really disturbing. You know, I had a question a while back about uh, multi-generational animal studies. You know, they use mice and lab rats, but for whatever reason, it seems like they're just not, or they're not releasing the data. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm told that the mRNA vaccines that, have, that they've been studied for a while, and it makes you wonder why these have never come to market. And the only answer I can come up with is there's a lot of dead rats. <laughs> and uh, I can't think of any way to do this mRNA technology. It is so different from what vaccines were designed to do, which to give you a weakened form of the pathogen so that your immune system could practice on the junior varsity before it hit the varsity. And, and these mRNA vaccines in no way simulate anything like what would happen if you got an infection. They just give the immune system all across signals. And if the immune system is already ill, suffering from biotoxicity or anything like that, you can only imagine that the immune system is going to be sent on a wild goose chase that becomes harmful. And I, I can't think of a way this technology can work. I know. It's, 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 uh, it's very disturbing for many of us that are paying attention, that's for sure. Well, Dr. Stock, we really appreciate your wisdom and your approach. You know, staying healthy seems to be the best thing to do, no, no matter what comes along, right? Indeed. <laughs> I think I can't remember the old saying, but the uh, uh, mediocre physicians treat disease and superior physicians prevent it. <laughs> that, that, that prevention's a lot easier to do than treatment, I can tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. Okay, next up, we've got Dr. Barbara Gowrie. Dr. Gowry is a family medicine doctor in Levittown, Pennsylvania. He received his medical degree from Ross University School of Medicine and has been in practice between 11 and 20 years. Evidence-based root cause medicine going beyond standard practice. Dr. Gowry, are you on, sir? I am. Can you hear me? We can. All right. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I always enjoy uh, working with your community. Um, let me just make a little correction uh, to the introduction there. I'm actually an internist um, and was trained in Philadelphia at uh, Drexel, which the former MCP Hahnemann. Um, and I also have quite a bit of other experience. I just want to touch on it because it'll be relevant. You'll see in a minute why. Um, I've been in practice now 20 years. I can't believe that I have been you know, practicing for that long. Um, and throughout that time, I've been privileged to have quite a number of uh, very diverse posts. Um, I've been board certified 
three times in um, internal medicine, uh, clinical informatics, and now integrative holistic medicine, which to be honest with you is my most prideful accomplishment in my career. And I've also had the honor to work in leadership positions in both hospital, health system, and pharmaceutical levels. My last formal um, quote-unquote job was at Pfizer, where I was the U.S. Enterprise um, Executive Medical Lead, similar to a CMO type of chief medical officer type of a position. Um, but I was also chief medical officer at uh, Trinity Health, which is a very large health system, as well as um, some of the, their hospitals, St. Mary Medical Center being the one of, of, of uh, uh, that's that's local to me, actually. It's actually my hospital. So it's, it's been, I've had a very privileged career. I left formal practice um, about three years ago when I went to Pfizer. I'm actually in the hospital right now. Um, I still practice, but um, my, my practice now is, I don't want to say a hobby because I see quite a number of patients, but I, do, I don't practice as much, maybe five to 10 days a month. But um, what I love about my practice now is that and, and, you know, I've been very privileged throughout my career is that I actually love being in the hospital because my time now um, with this new training, integrated practice and, and looking at people like Dan Stock, you know, um, there's there are so many others, Dr. Mercola, um, uh, so many, I, I'll, I'll be here forever if I need them all. But, you know, using using those using these people's experience and writing and, and research and experience. Um, I can I can finally say that I'm I have the knowledge or at least the knowledge that's available to take good care of patients. Um, so I bring this up, Araxis, because earlier um, we were talking about why, you know, why aren't other doctors speaking up? And I can speak very clearly about that because I was I would have been one of those doctors had I not had all this experience that I've had. Um, you know, doctors are busy people. Number one, you know, nobody becomes a doctor because they don't want to help people. We, we all do it because and nurses and pharmacists and really everybody in the healthcare arena, um, you know, with, the, with some exceptions. But the vast majority of clinicians, they want to take care of patients. So the number one reason is busy. You know, it's just the, the days are long. The information is really big and great and, and immense. And it takes a lot of time to understand it, especially COVID. Um, and... That's kind of the main reason, which I would say is probably 30 or 40% of people, just, just that ignorance. Number two is how do you become a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist? Now, you have to do very well in school, but what is school about, especially public school, which is on a product of public school? School is about compliance. Who is the most compliant? The teacher says A, B, and C. A, B, and C may be completely wrong. But A, B, and C is what the test is going to be on. So you better know it and you better be able to regurgitate it. So I spent my entire career being compliant and learning and doing whatever my medical school professor said, whatever my college professor said, and whatever my teacher said. Um, most of it was very good information that was absolutely correct. But a lot of it wasn't, um, especially in medical school, about prevention. You know, um, And that's a whole other talk that we can go into. So compliance is in our genes so when the CDC, even for me, you know, up until about 10 or 15 years ago when I started to open my eyes, if the CDC said something, I'm doing it, period. You know, why would I go against the CDC? I didn't know at that time that the CDC is a private company that's contracted by the government and not a government agency. I didn't know that the CDC officials were um, uh, not elected people. 
These are appointed people or people that are literally hired. Uh, same thing with FDA, same thing with other mm-hmm. government agencies. They're not government agencies. These are private companies, including the Federal Reserve. Um, so most doctors have no clue, and I didn't have a clue either. And especially academic people like myself, I was an academic early in my career, and I kind of switched into a private role now, although I still have a very healthy interest in, in scholarly activities and scholarship. Um, most of us, we're experts in compliance. So why wouldn't we comply with whatever the healthcare leadership said? So um, there are other reasons why I could go into, but those those are the two main reasons. And then, you know, the third reason, you know, it's, it, it is money, but it's, it's not money directly. It's indirectly money. You know, why would I even go to a place or think about something that could jeopardize my entire career, right? So that's an indirect, you know, sinister underlying issue that unfortunately a lot of doctors are dealing with. And, um, you know, I'm no longer active on social media, but when I was every single day, I got some, because I was pretty vocal about COVID and and the things that um, I was seeing. Uh, Every single day I got a direct message from some physician or nurse or somewhere thanking me for speaking up um, because they felt they couldn't, they felt that they, you know, their, uh, their job or some, some, some person in their career, you know, would find that difficult to um, to accept and, and let them continue in their roles. So, so that was your that, own, oh, I'm sorry, sir, a real quick question. Would you say that was just innate bravery or, or do you have a certain level of autonomy that others don't? Well, I wouldn't say bravery. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I have always throughout my entire life and career and you know, just like most doctors, I mean, we're trained to look at data, right? And the data from the very beginning, I mean, I remember from the very first day, I never watched CNN, you know, I never watched the news in general, I mean, very rarely. And I remember watching CNN and looking at the data that they were showing on the screen, then looking at the data I had in my own health system in the hospital, I had all the data, it's about 100 hospitals, you know, it's quite a bit of data. And it wasn't jiving. It wasn't making sense. And even to this day, I still get, because I'm on staff at so many hospitals now, um, I get the data at all of our hospitals. And and I just let it, yesterday uh, I was having dinner with um, some business associates and they were talking about the vaccine and I showed them the data. And we had 40 patients, I showed them one hospital. I said, look, here's the hospital. There were 40 patients in the hospital, 20 were vaccinated and 20 weren't. And that's the data every single day. It's about 50 or 60% one way or the other, up or down. You know, the vaccine is not preventing inpatients, you know, from coming to the hospital. Are you speaking, Ibrax? I can't hear you. Good stuff, good stuff. I think I want to continue this and be a little bit longer. Well, on the sound. So having said that, let me move then into uh, my focus area for today. All right. So I'm here to speak about IV nutraceuticals today. Um, in our practice, we have an integrated practice in Bucks County. Um, and in our practice, we have been doing quite a bit of IV uh, nutraceuticals for patients with COVID. Now, let me back up for a second and say IVs are not the right way to start taking care of a COVID patient. You know, Dr. Stock did a great job and Dr. Chetty did a great job talking about, you know, prevention of COVID, number one. Dr. Stock and Dr. Chetty are absolutely right. The role of IV nutraceuticals in COVID is not as first line. (laughs) Um, And, you know, unfortunately, some people 
believe that it is and they, they use it as prevention, but it's absolutely not. And we, we like to tell people to, you know, look at the other things that, that were so well covered by others on the call. Um, but okay. it is definitely an option. So early in the pandemic, some people might remember, you know, China wasn't, for a while, China was being discussed what they, the, the therapeutic options they were taking. And one of them was IV vitamin C, which actually is really, really cheap. Um, so what they were doing was 25 grams of vitamin C IV every day for five days. Um, and that actually did a pretty good job of uh, quelling and, and flattening their curves early on. Now, shortly after they started doing that, they went radio silence and, you know, we didn't really see their data anymore after that. Um, but there was a health system in New York, Northwell. There's a couple of critical care physicians that were doing the same thing. I don't know if they're still doing it to this day. Um, but the data from those uh, centers were showing that the IV vitamin C was working, especially for inpatient. And this is 25 grams is a relatively high dose. And uh, as, as most people know, vitamin D is an antioxidant, um, most commonly taken orally, you know, and obviously through the diet. It's a critical factor, just like vitamin D, in uh, immune function. And what's really interesting about it, and all of this study, you know, started with Dr. Pauling, Linus Pauling, who discovered, you know, uh, vitamin C and its effects. Um, but up to the up to about 15 grams or so, it has antioxidant effect. And it's about 25 grams or so when it actually becomes a pro-oxidant, which is very, very cool. <laughs> so now you're it's going out into your system and it's looking for things that, you know, um, that it can oxidize. And anything that's foreign is going to get oxidized. So that's believed to be the really cool mechanism of action of, uh, of vitamin C itself. Now, in, in our centers, we do vitamin C, but it's, uh, we, are the, we call it a, uh, an immunodrip, which is, is, is formulated to support the immune system. So it's got vitamin C, it's got selenium, um, and it's got a number of other um, you know, common minerals and nutrients. So magnesium, calcium, uh, it's a lot of fluid. It's about a liter of fluid. Um, and then there are some other, um, ingredients as well, potassium, you know, just to stabilize it and uh, other things that I, I won't go into, but then after the immunodrip, uh, we also give a, a dose, a shot of vitamin D. And as mentioned earlier, vitamin D is a critical factor in, um, both preventing and treating, um, COVID. And so, there's, there's been quite a bit of research and there's been good literature on high dose vitamin D in the, in the form of 50,000 units IM intramuscular um, five, for five days and actually just by itself treating and, and, and finishing and, and completing the course, the clinical course of, uh, of COVID. And so uh, that we have not done that, but we do give high dose vitamin D up, I have, we have given 50,000 to some patients, but most, most patients are kind of com nervous to do that and, and they'll do 10,000 units or even 20,000 units. Um, but the truth is even that is great because literally within, you know, two to four hours, they're starting to feel better. If not during the drip itself, it's pretty amazing. Um, the effects of this. And so, um, that really is the primary, you know, in terms of IV, um, that, you know, from terms of nutraceuticals, the other, you know, sub Q treatment. Now this is a pharmaceutical treatment is heparin, 
Um, and then there are other IV nutraceuticals that um, I can just list here just so for people to just to be comprehensive. I know there's going to be recording here as well, but there's polyphenols, there's lectins, there's high molecular weight polysaccharides, um, there's nalto, there's berberine, and then there's also botanicals like curcumin, nigella sativa, boswellia, and then there's also lactoferrin. Uh, these are also um, nutraceuticals that can be used. And again, I'm sure others on this call are much more qualified than I am to speak about them. We don't do them in our centers, or they're not commonly available in the U.S. as far as I know. Um, but those are also options. And if you can take them as an oral nutraceutical, um, it can also be beneficial in the, in the prevention form as well. Now, interesting, you know, I looked at the literature prior to this call, and um, you know, most there's a lot of literature on all these things, right? But the funniest thing is at the end of every article, it says, you know, all of these things are, are not as um, um, as good as getting the vaccine. <laughs> One bad um, way to health, right? You know, it's just it's just amazing, you know, and I, and I love when Dr. McCullough speaks about it because, you know, he's probably of all of us, probably the most pub published. And, uh, and and, you know, when he talks about it, it's just like, you know, what are we really doing here? But um, that's really the end of what I had to say, unless you had wanted me to speak about any, any other factor of COVID. So, yeah, I guess back to the nutraceuticals, uh, you know, the injected IV form. Is that something that's easy to find at other hospitals? Is it a rare thing? Do most hospitals stock these substances? Yeah, let, let, that's a great point. So let me back up for a second and say we're not doing that in the hospital. <laughs> we're not doing any of these in the hospital. These are all in our in our private practice. Um, so they're all administered under, you know, physician care and, um, you know, these are very cheap, very cheap things compared to, you know, monoclonal antibodies and remdesivir and all the things that we're doing in the hospital that there's data that show that don't work yet. We're continuing to do them. Um, we do, we do vitamin D, but as Dr. Stock mentioned, you know, these, these are inflamed people in the hospital. They are not absorbing any of that oral vitamin D that's being put down, you know, in ET or, uh, uh, you know, a G tube, right. Or, a, a feeding, uh, a dop off tube is what we use most often. And so it's kind of ridiculous, you know, but, but I am surprised that we, we do still see vitamin C, not on everybody's order set, but vitamin C was on, I was amazed when I saw vitamin C on the COVID order, order set back in March of 2020. Um, and, and there are a lot of hospitals that still have vitamin C and vitamin D on the order set, but a vast majority have taken them off, which is like amazing to me. Um, but yeah, th these, these nutraceutical approach, generally you're not going to get it in the hospital. The doctors will look at you like you're crazy if you even suggest it. Um, it's something that you should try to get as an outpatient and, you know, inter integrative medicine in general is becoming extremely popular. COVID has been a great marketing tool <laughs> for practices like ours. Um, people are waking up and, and taking control of their own health. And, you know, when you look, when you address the root cause of, of your illness, you're going to be led to an integrative practice somewhere. So if you don't find it in integrative practice, um, look in large cities, most large cities have, you know, an, an IV center. I like to call them hangover centers where they're kind of right next to the bar or the club. Um, but if you speak to them, they're able, to, they may, they probably have it in stock already, but if you speak to them, they can order it for you and get it very quickly. Uh, so selenium and vitamin C, they, they, they will definitely have vitamin C. They probably will have selenium. They may or may not have vitamin D, but they can get it quickly. So if you go to some of these centers that are already doing infusions, 
it's not a big deal generally for them to get, you know, these types of things. Even even proper infusion centers, places that do chemotherapy and, and other pharmaceuticals, you know, they are willing in general to um, get these therapies if you can find somebody to prescribe them to you. Excellent, man. Thank you for the information. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, for us, we love the root cause approach that you've taken because that's really where a lot of us are on the, you know, more the natural spectrum. Right. And that's why we have you guys on the call, man. So thank you. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's um, for the numbers today. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a couple more speakers and we've got an open Q and a, if you happen to be free in about 20 or 30 minutes, we'd love to have you. And if not, we fully understand, but we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Dr. Gari. Hi, Dr. Cassells. How are you, sir? I'm well, Brad. So, Dr. Cassells, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your background, uh, if you would? Sure. Um, uh, I, uh, I've been a, a doctor, I guess, a little over 40 years now. Uh, retired uh, at the end of 2019, just in time for COVID, uh, to really date myself uh, somewhere towards the end of my medical school years before I went on to surgical training at Yale University, uh, an organization called the CDC was uh, inaugurated. And the first head of the CDC was a fellow named Anthony Fauci. And uh, uh, notwithstanding my irritation at the fact that they stole my initials, which are CDC, um, about the first interaction I had with Dr. Anthony Fauci was that he prevented us as young doctors in training from testing uh, the target population for HIV. So I've had a deep and unabiding dislike and distrust of the man ever since then. Um, unlike uh, 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 one of the, Dr. Gurry, I believe mentioned that uh, the people tend to trust the CDC. No, I'm afraid I don't. Um, so what I'd like to do is, is do uh, what I did best when I was in practice is explain things to our uh, 700 or so listeners tonight um, beyond what has already been done in such extraordinary detail by, by these doctors who frankly are my heroes as a, as a non-practicing physician anymore other than the occasional uh, uh, you know, uh, ivermectin or HCQ that I prescribe for people in desperation. But to summarize uh, things so that people at home can understand um, let me put it this way. Um, I'm going to run down a quick list here. If remdesivir works, then why doesn't it? Well, the answer is it kills kidneys, causes kidney failure. If ventilators work, then why don't they? Well, because they seem to precipitate blood clots by forcing cellular debris into the peripheral vasculature, and it causes clotting cascades. Then if lockdowns work, then why don't they? Well, you know, the answer to that is actually in about the sixth century when we found that lockdowns were ineffective against the Justinian plague, which was a forerunner to the bubonic plague. And most recently, of course, the study out of Johns Hopkins, which the CDC has been forced to acknowledge is that lockdowns had less than a 0.2%, that's 0.2 to one thousandth of a percent uh, beneficial effect, which is 
statistically negligible. So then we get to mRNA vaccines. If mRNA vaccines work, then, then why don't they? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. Um, they were very much too targeted. They were untested, unreliable. Um, they, uh, they had great promise for cancer, but they were rushed to market for this, uh, this vaccine. And I think that was probably ill thought out. My guess is history will write that uh, mRNA technology is not appropriate for uh, vaccinology. I think that's where that's all gonna, gonna come down when the final tally is written. So finally, I get around to what you asked me to speak about, which is masks. So this has been stated by many people, but none so eloquently as a, as a young lady who, uh, who spoke to the, the Prince William County School Board recently. Um, if masks work, then why don't they? Well, the simple answer is that, you know, a, a mask, whether it be N95 or a surgical mask, or uh, even or, or double triple layer cloth masks they're really given the size of the viral particles they're really akin to trying to stop a mosquito with a chain link fence and i think that's something that people can get an idea about the virus doesn't care about masks it goes right through them the bottom line is you know they're they're a minimum 47 uh different academic papers with one meta-analysis of 60, 60 papers um, that all basically say masks don't work. They do not have a measurable positive effect. And this all leads up to an article within the last month in, of all places, the Atlantic Monthly, which is not known uh, for its uh, right of center uh, thinking or writing. The Atlantic Monthly actually did a very credible job of doing a, a literature review that comes up uh, with the fact that masking children does not have a valid argument. Uh, so now that we're seeing that creep into the press, we're starting to see some of the diehard masking politicians who were doing it simply because they didn't have good advice. And that's kind. Um, I think many of them were doing it to try and demonstrate leadership and they didn't know what else to do. So uh, masking seemed to be something that they could do. But, but now uh, with uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey relieving the school mask mandate and quickly on the heels of that, our mutual governor, Governor Carney, uh, has uh, declared, I think, the end of March as the end of masks. Although um, I, I, I don't believe him, he's done this sort of thing before. But, uh, but one way or another, there is a, there is a rush to, uh, to throw the masks out um, after this, this tsunami of data showing that masking children is exceedingly harmful. Um, it's harmful developmentally. Um, it, it, the, 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 what we've done to our children um, in the name of politics is unthinkable and history will not treat this kindly. Um, so then on to something a little bit more positive, because after all, this is about health and freedom. Um, I come tonight, uh, to paraphrase Shakespeare, you know, I come to bury COVID, not to praise it. You know, the slide five I had is, a, is the cover sheet 
of uh, uh, an article that came out fairly recently in the Journal of Genetic Genomics, which in my mind proves definitively that the new variant running around called Omicron um, is actually derived from several spontaneous, and we call this in science zoonotic, but spontaneous mutations that occurred in mice. Um, one of the reasons we know that this did not come out of a lab is that nobody has taken credit for it. Um, these, these are classic mice mutations. And what they've done to the COVID-19 virus is, number one, they made it very, very benign. It's really akin to a very mild cold. And number two, they made it incredibly transmissible. So it's going to jump from person to person. One way or another, there is no amount of lockdown or masks or anything you can do on the planet that's going to prevent Omicron from spreading through the world's population very, very rapidly. So the good news about that is that Omicron is effectively the perfect vaccine. It induces a broad-based uh, immunity to many different uh, COVID cell wall proteins uh, or viral wall proteins. And, and the immunity seems to appear uh, very long live. Um, the, the really great part about Omicron is that you don't have to get it through the FDA and you don't have to work on any kind of manufacturing or uh, delivery logistics because it's gonna take care of that itself. So Omicron is effectively in literary terms an ex-teus machina. It's a natural occurring mutation that's going to end this this episode of COVID-19, um, as far as as far as I can see it, and I've been following it um, very closely, but that I think is the take-home lesson for people. Then, then there's another take-home lesson, which is what we're going to see going forward as as the fallout from very very bad public policy uh, across the board. Um, they, they say, you know, in life, you should be mindful of your wake as if you were a large boat passing a small boat. You really have to be mindful of what you're going to do with your wake to that small boat. And that's really what's going to happen now in COVID. When we see the, uh, the Indianapolis-based uh, um, insurance company, One America, uh, come out with an alarming number of deaths in the working age range from 18 years old to 64 years old, um, when an insurance executive comes forward talking about a 40% increase in those deaths, um, that that is not somebody with a political agenda. That is a bean counter. That's somebody who is simply counting how much money they are going to lose because of death benefits. and. Insurance companies, life insurance companies, do not like to give out money just randomly. They like proof that somebody actually has died. So they require on the death certificate a cause of death. What's really noticeable about the One America 40% uptick in deaths between 18 and 64 is that these were not COVID deaths. They do not carry the two you uh, 007.1 or U007.2 COVID diagnoses, and it would be beneficial 
to the hospital and to the doctors to put down that diagnosis if it were somehow or another related, but it's not. These are death certificates that do not have that designation. So this is a very real uptick. To give you some kind of perspective on this, if this were a 10% uptick in deaths of that demographic, that would be a Sigma three event. In other words, randomly occurring, that event would occur once every 200 years. A 40% uptick in those deaths is on the order of, if it were to occur randomly, would be on the order of tens of billions of years, once every 60 billion years. So this is statistically not possible to be a, uh, a black swan event, a, uh, a random occurrence. It just can't be. The truth is people between the age of 18 and 64 are dying at an alarming rate. And the only reasonable explanation for that kind of situation, because we, we're not seeing it in cancer statistics, the only explanation is blood clots. And these are massive strokes and massive heart attacks caused by blood clots. And to my way of thinking, unless somebody comes forward with a much better reason, reason the, uh, the, the only explanation in my mind is that this is, is uh, spike protein induced from the vaccine. I am open to any other suggestions of that, but uh, I think in the next few months, as the other life insurance companies put forward their numbers, we're going to see uh, you know a deafening actuarial uh, database. So, you know, we're coming to the end of what I and most of the people I'm hearing tonight who are, uh, in my estimation, the best and the brightest free thinkers in this arena um, and great scientists, we're coming to the end of what I think is a hoax. Um, it, it's possible that this is all driven by money. It seems like uh, at the end of the day, money also, uh, always seems to drive things, but it certainly uh, is very suspicious that something even greater than, than money is afoot here. And, and of course, there is the mass hysteria that Dr. McCullough uh, so eloquently described, and Dr. Robert Malone, who's another one of my heroes, has described very, very accurately. But I think there's a reality coming, uh, coming to roost that is going to be very undeniable. So, you know, what I would say to your listeners, who I, I presume tuned in because they want to know what to do and how to do it, I would reiterate what you've said all along, Brax, and I, I commend you for, for what you've accomplished. Um, learn how to stay healthy. Seek out good, trusted, trusted medical care and be skeptical. For heaven's sakes, be skeptical of those institutions that have deservedly lost your trust over the last two years. Amen, my friend. That would be the CDC, the FDA. I'll kind of share the rest of this little conversation um, in another episode. I have just too much else to be sharing. So I just want to give you a touch base that I have an interview that was really good and a 
the way I hope to put it together will just make sense to what the heck is going on in the world. So I hope that that's helpful. I thought that they brought up a good point about having function in the liver. There was so much good conversation in this whole that is just needs to be shared. So I just hope that you can help somebody out today and share this whole episode and say, hey, just explore the things that she's putting out and go do your own research. Like you said, be skeptical of gosh, all sorts of people at this point that are just putting out nonsense. So, um, and that is the mainstream media. <laughs>